0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the what is money show. I'm sitting down today with Mr. Jeffrey West, who is the author of a superb book called scale that we're going to be talking about today. And Jeffrey is also a theoretical physicist at the Santa Fe Institute, which is a place known for a lot of bright minds and and brilliant thinking. So Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Yes. Uh, Thank you, Robert. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me and I'm looking forward to
1: our conversation.
0: I am as well. You know, I was telling you offline, I think it's been two years since I read your book originally. It was recommended to me by a friend, Alex Gladstein. um, And he knew I had been writing and thinking a lot about this, like where you draw the line between living and non-living, right? It's a very fuzzy line as your book um, really points to. And so you know, I'll just read the title of the book, Scale the Universal Laws of Life, Growth, and Death in Organisms, Cities, and Companies. So it does a great job of explaining, I guess, the network dynamics or the physics even of these different forms of, of life. Um, and, you know, maybe we could start there. Like, how do you think about living versus non-living life versus... Uh, non-life, I guess. Where, like, How do you think about this topic and where do you draw the lines?
1: Yeah. Well, that's, of course, a very challenging question and <laughs> one that many people have tried to answer. And I don't think there is, in, at least to my mind, a truly definitive answer. It's one of these things that you have to say many things, you know, you you by example, almost. But, mm-hmm. but I think, uh, since you're introduced, me via the book and the title, of this this uh, grandiose subtitle <laughs> for the book, uh, that um, I, you know I do consider um, life beyond what we normally think of as the biosphere. You know, uh-huh. animals, plants, and organisms, microorganisms, ecolo- ec- ecological systems. More than that, and that uh, to, to varying degrees, um, you know superorganisms maybe like cities and companies are also manifest various aspects of life and um, you know one can sort of make a laundry list of some of those properties like uh, um, you know metabolizing using energy to metabolize and and uh, and be functional in some way um, and and take an extreme opposite to that unlike um, you know, just a piece of rock, a great big boulder sitting there, even though it absorbs energy, it doesn't use it in any truly functional way. Um, it doesn't need that energy to continue to survive, but a company, um, an organism, um, or a city does need continuous supply of uh, energy um, in some form or another. So there's that, there's sort of metabolism. Um, and then there's uh, things like um, uh, reproduction
0: mm-hmm.
1: that uh, in some way, in some form or another, typically life reproduces itself and passes on templates of that by, of course, our DNA. And um, it's not so clear with something like a city, um, you know, to what extent does it reproduce? Well, probably doesn't in the usual sense. There aren't sort of offsprings. Um, well, I suppose you might consider, you know, suburban developments as part of it. So that gets, a bit, that's where it gets quite fuzzy. Mm. Um, but I think a central feature of life, a truly central feature of life, that um, distinguishes it to, to some extent from what you might call non-living, is uh, adaptability, and evolvability, and response to external changes. Um, and often that is to try to optimize in some way. This is not this, That's a very touchy question, you know. Do you know? It's um, uh, but so associated with that uh, adaptability, evolvability is also uh, the 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 concept of growth. That's another aspect of life um, that is a critical part that uh, all of these things that, uh, you know, I've lumped under the the kind of the the big question of life all grow, they all start from something that is uh, usually quite small and via metabolism, um, accumulate more and more of their mass, if you like, or more and more subsystems that become part of them, whether it's, um, again, an organism, a city or a company. you know, it's it's so my my I don't have a definition of life, but I have a bunch of characteristics of life that I think um, are typically shared across all of these entities. And um, and the thing I became interested in are there sort of these general laws? I call them universal because that's a physics term actually. Mm-hmm. But are they these sort of general laws? Um, that um, you know life, in its various manifestations, um, uh, obey. Um, even in, and, and laws, by laws I'll, I'll maybe later, as we talk, we can clarify this, laws in a not in the strict sense of Newton's laws, uh-huh. you know that is absolutely precise, and this is what it is, but laws that we often in in um, in physics, especially, use the word coarse-grained, that is, again, certain fuzziness. It's sort of low resolution, um, uh, not the kind of fine resolution detail that is typical of, uh, of a physical system. I mean, and that's another thing that, to some extent, distinguishes life from non-living, non-liv- is that um, non-living things often have at least parts of them Obey very precise laws, and that's of course the area of physics. But non-living things um, often um, have these laws that allow some violation up to a certain degree. And uh, so the other thing that that brings in as a bigger concept, um, which is is that of what we call complex adaptive system. That is a system that is highly complex. And life typically consists of um, enormous numbers of individual actors, components, interacting among themselves, as I say, adapting, evolving, growing, and so on. Um, And that they have multiple levels of uh, regularity. I mean, like we do, we have, you know, we go from cellular to, organism to organs we have organs and then we some the organs were us but there's these various levels of emergent behavior and uh life may have some of those but not to the same degree and certainly not to the same complexity so i haven't answered your question in any precise way but in a descriptive way and being a physicist um trying to put those Uh, those ideas that I've tried to articulate into a mathematical framework where we can make them a little more precise than just the words that I use. Uh, Because mathematics, one of the great things about mathematics um, is that it is a precise language. And even if it is describing things that of themselves are imprecise, which is kind of a curious paradox. And furthermore, it allows one to uh, remain, you know, rational, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. <laughs> and so that's the way that's, now that may exclude things, and that's an interesting subject of itself, is that by by demanding that we can put these things into mathematics, uh, you know, one may exclude some very essential features of the systems we're thinking of, and especially life, right? I mean, it's harder, you know, when you think of our lives, you know, as human beings, um, you know, we don't, we, it's hard to imagine that we can put, you know, love and hate and ideas, so to speak, into a precise mathematical frame, framework. So that may, right. you know, that's right. a truly essential feature of our social life. Yes. So I recognize that, but, you know, in terms of my own thinking, I have become, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by those aspects of life. Maybe this is a better way of saying it. I'm fascinated by those aspects of life, which can be put into a mathematical, quantitative, and and potentially predictive
0: framework. It's really interesting, you know, the idea of putting, trying to evaluate the world through a lens of mathematics. Mm -hmm. It does, there's some relationship between how you're looking at a system and what you see, right? Like, if you put this rational lens on, you might be blind to certain, Absolutely. you know, quote, quote, unquote, irrational aspects of reality or life. And no, right. maybe maybe that's related to, because the other thing about complex adaptive systems that are really interesting, that is really interesting to me is that they have this kind of opaque logic in a way, right? Mm-hmm. We can't trace causality through a, through a complex adaptive system very easily. We can kind of, I guess we can... Uh, Assign like as you said, they're not laws so much. I guess they're more like central tendencies, um, or something to that. The average behavior, sort of average, average behavior. Or, yeah. or even
1: I, I like the central tendencies or sort of average. Um, but I, I would like to go one step beyond that. The idea is to get that the essential features in that sense of mm. sort of average behavior. You know, sort of even defining what would be the average human being be, you know, right. the ideal human being. But then recognizing that there is a whole bunch of statistical fluctuations around that, obviously. Yes. And, yes. Uh, but but to really, first of all, let's get the dominant behavior understood. So that's right. where I'm coming from. Let's understand the dominant behavior and then let's look at these multiple variations. Yes.
0: You know, it's so interesting that you're intuitively describing praxeology and Austrian economics, actually, which they have, they it's a deductive system that looks at axioms. So they just try to develop very specific axioms of human action. The, the primary one being man must act, which, which is to say humans use means to achieve ends. And so we have a purpose, basically every action we take, there's some purpose behind it. And there's other axioms here, like, you know, man values free time, uh, man prefers goods now versus goods later, things like this. But this is in- interesting that you're, you're touching on that already. Um, let me, all right, so about life. I read this definition recently. and I'd like to get your thoughts on it. And this was from a book about economics, but also from a physics lens, which I think is a very, very important uh, connection between two domains. But like you said earlier, they're not the same, right? There's physics, which has these constants we can create formulas and things about, but social sciences are different. We can't, we can't formulaically describe what an individual or individuals are going to do. So This book defined life as an open system in a thermodynamic sense, which imports energy and exports entropy. Mm -hmm. And I was reminded here of the, there's an old GK Chesterton quote that says, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. So what is the relationship, if any, worth talking about, between life and entropy and it may help to define entropy here too. I think it's one of the most ill understood words in the world. um, But something I think that I, my intuition tells me it's very important, but even I don't really understand what entropy is fully yet. (laughs) Yeah. So I I think even in my book, I talk about this, uh, some. I talk about entropy
1: and I, and I talk about it within the context of something that uh, has been, you know, uh, I don't know very deep interest of mine for a very long time uh-huh. and in fact was the something that got me interested in all these questions and, and and the shift from sort of being a physicist interested in dark matter and string theory uh-huh. <laughs> to thinking about life so to speak and that is the whole question of aging and death aging and mortality um it's always been Something that has sort of maybe morbidly fascinated me, but it became more and more interesting, of course, as I got older and began to realize that I was facing my own mortality. And um, you know, I think in my book I said, you know, life is a continuous fight against entropy, mm-hmm. because, as you say, as that definition says, that's a it's a very limited definition, but it's a crucial aspect of life that because, so let me back off a second, because you asked the question about what is entropy, mm. and uh, there is a precise mathematical definition within you know, the, the whole physics canon, um, but um, loosely speaking, it's that um, if you use energy, well, you have to use energy. When you use energy to create order, so you make a cell, you make an automobile, um, you um, you know make an iPhone, whatever. Um, if you use energy, to, which you have to do to make that, then um, inevitably you create some disorder. Hmm. Uh, you cannot do it with, so to speak, 100% efficiency. Or disorder is an inevitable outcome. So in a certain sense, just to give an example, you know, you know we, we're, we're worried about, uh, you know, pollution and the environment and so on. Um, the effects on the environment of the marvelous things we've done in creating our cities and our socioeconomic system. Um, and the, the point is you can't, that's inevitable. It's inevitable that we're going to create pollution um, and we're going to um, have uh, potentially deleterious effects on the environment. The big question is, how do you minimize that? How do you minimize it? Because even if you use energy to mitigate the damage you've done in correcting it, you still create entropy. Right. So you're always going to be creating this thing. Called, so this disorder is called entropy. And there is a precise definition, as I said. But loosely speaking, that's what it is. So going back to life, and in fact, that GK Test- Chesterton quote, um, it's, it is that um, when you, you know, the way we stay alive is, is through metabolism. That is we eat and we extract metabolic energy from the food we eat by oxidizing it. And um, that's our respiratory system. And uh, that feeds ourselves and coherently that keeps us alive. But in so doing, um, we create entropy. And we do it inevitably by damaging ourselves in various ways. I mean, in our terms, just in creating um, um, something called ATP, which is the the highly complex molecule, which is your currency of energy. Hmm. It's sort of your dollar's worth of energy that every cell is creating, um, uh, is creating ATP, and that's what you use in order to stay alive through um, oxidative respiration, and um, but the chemical process in so doing creates these, you know, um, the, the 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 these Waste. oxygen molecules, yeah. and they can damage your cells. So even though that's keeping you alive, it's also in a certain sense destroying you. And in this, and even more explicitly, you know, uh, that energy has to be distributed throughout your body and one of the primary systems is your circulatory system, your cardiovascular system. I mean, the whole point of that is just the whole point of blood and, and sending it through the network of your cardiovascular system is to carry oxygen and other nutrients to the cells. And of course, that's what it does, but in so doing, in so keeping you alive, that blood is flowing through tubes and of course, it's wearing wearing them out. I mean, you wear and you create wear and tear, um, just as your you know water running in the pipes of your house eventually uh, creates problems. And um, of course, you do repair yourself, but the that wear and tear is entropy production, mm. and um, and so um, you know you have to repair that as, as well as you can. But eventually, entropy wins. Mm. entropy overtakes because the um, more and more you're having to supply um, uh, energy to do those repairs. And as they pile up, um, you can't afford to do it. Otherwise you'd have to, it's like having, in that sense, we're like a machine. It is Mm. like having a car, you know, and you can, you know, you you take your car in for maintenance, um, you know, change the oil and the filters and all the rest of that stuff. And, um, you know, you can do it according to the schedule in the handbook. But you know damn well that after five years, 10 years, 20 years, depending on the car and how much you use it, that car is going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can keep that car going is either not to drive it very often, which is the case Mm -hmm. of antique automobiles, Mm -hmm. or you could, every time you drive it, repair it. I mean, you know, every time you go out, you and of course, the cost of that is totally prohibited. Right. And much better that you drive it and then buy a new one after uh, five years or 10 years or two, whatever it is that you mm. do. And in a weird way, there's an analog with in nature. Mm. Better to let us wear ourselves out and produce new ones, <laughs> <laughs> which is what, of course, life does. So I'm I'm taking liberties with my my analogies, but that's sort of what's happening. And that's what entropy is. And entropy is absolutely central to, um, especially to living systems, because living systems are first of all, creating order, because you have to build up this extraordinary system that is our bodies, but then you have to maintain it. And it is the maintaining it is fighting entropy. Mm. Interesting. Wow. And by um, the way, there's analogies, I think, to in cities and companies to that.
0: I agree completely. You know exactly where I'm going with this, perhaps. Um, <laughs> before, before we go to the so out of my own curiosity, order and disorder then, are these relative terms or are these, um, I guess, mathematically or definable with mathematical precision? And what I'm thinking of here is, um, I've read some texts that describe uncertainty as entropy as well. This and this might yeah. be connected to uh-huh. Maxwell's demon, uh, the thought yes, with so... that. So, and the question here, like the way I'm thinking about this, okay, if we know, for instance, one guy knows Haley's comet comes around once every 75 years or whatever it is, but someone else doesn't. Well, the guy that knows sees Haley's comment and there's no, he has no new information, right? It's like he expected right. that already. The guy that didn't know, it's a surprise. So yeah, exactly. Uh, it, I guess what is the relationship between entropy and uncertainty? Uh-huh. And then as a follow-on to that, is entropy actually everywhere? Or is it just within networks, as you described, that it's wear and tear oh, the right. networks? Yes,
1: entropy is everywhere. I mean, entropy is, uh, you know, it's... Uh... It's an integral part. It's sort of like energy is everywhere because right. entropy is energy. It's, uh, it's, it's creating, and maybe I should stress this, it's um, entropy is, as I say, I associate with disorder, which means it's sort of like useless energy. It's sort of like, you know, friction. Friction is one of the best examples. Oh. Um, you know, you create heat, that heat, and uh, mostly you can't use it. I mean, it's uh, you know when you rub something, it creates that heat, which sort of dissipates, and um, and so um, it's, it is everywhere, and um, it's mostly not useful energy. And one of the things you know, in, in in terms of engineering, is to find ways, of course, to try to make that um, uh, what what appears to be a dissipated not useful energy into something useful. Mm. And of course, uh, you know, in terms of, um, you know, trying to, I mean, for example, um, a trivial example is, um, you know, the the um, when you drive your car, um, it creates heat. That's why the engine, the engine runs hot. Mm-hmm. That's entropy, mm-hmm. the engine's running hot. Um, But, uh, you know, one of the engineering things that takes advantage of that is to keep you warm inside the, on your seat. I mean, you use that heat that's generated by the engine, which will go to sort of just out there into the atmosphere. Um, You know, you you have to, I mean, of course, it costs you to do that, but it is one way of trying to control um, entropy. Um, Now, your first question, is, uh, I, I, is is sort of a tangent to this um, to do with information mm-hmm. there is an, uh, there's another use of the word entropy um, to describe a degree of information
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, it turns out that the mathematics of that um, and you know what you know and what you don't know and how you can define the number of bits and so on the mathematics of that, is essentially identical to the mathematics of sort of thermal entropy, heat entropy, and and uh, energetic entropy. Um, and so you have to be careful that they don't get conflated. But there are uh, but they are there, there are bridges between them. But in the sort of things that you know I've been interested in, that plays much less of a role than the. Physical entropy, the original meaning of entropy, that was introduced, um, uh, you know, when people were trying to understand uh, developing the um, uh, theory of thermodynamics. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, one of the other things maybe I should have said about entropy, um, the, the the second law, what's called the second law of thermodynamics, is that is 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 put uh, is, is what I said earlier is the inevitability of creating entropy. And the second law is very simply stated in a closed system, mm-hmm. so a closed system, entropy always increases. Right. That's that's the statement.
0: And- um, Can we define, and, and, sorry, just for the audience, open versus closed system, yes. in thermodynamic Thermodynamics. Yes,
1: system. so an open, a closed system literally means you know, you can imagine there's some boundary, a box or some uh, encasement, and um, uh, no more energy comes in and out of that, I mean, in principle, that's the idea that there's something that it's closed and it's within the system. So everything stays within the system. Because so for example, and a, and a fantastic example of it is of course the planet. We are not a closed system. We're an open system because the sun is shining on us, giving us energy all the time. Um, And and one of the problems we face in terms of our long-term future on the planet, and one of the problems with having um, exploited fossil fuels, which has given rise to this extraordinary society we live in, um, you know, the the discovery and exploitation and the beginning of the Industrial Revolution was that instead of the planet functioning entirely as an open system, that is, we as human beings, let alone the rest of the biosphere, we're getting our energy primarily from the sun so that we're in this open system, Um, whether we were Uh hunter-gatherers or whether we were agriculturalists, that energy was giving rise to growth of agricultural products that Uh sustained us, but that was coming... You know the energy for that was primarily coming from the outside we changed to making it what was effectively a closed system mm. that is the burning of fossil fuel because we're just simply burning the surface of the planet that's what we've been doing and we've done that extraordinarily well but we're paying a price for it because that means that we have um, we've enhanced tremendously the production of entropy Hmm. And that production of entropy is deleterious in terms of the environment and ourselves and so on. So that's the big issue. That's sort of the big picture way of thinking about it. But it is the difference between a closed and an open system.
0: Very interesting there. I'd never thought about it. So the shift from, let's just say, the agricultural age to the industrial age, for instance, we, were, we went from living off of flows of energy, which is like the sunlight falling sure. on the earth, I right. guess it was somewhat being accumulated as a stock in the agriculture. Oh, absolutely. Yes.
1: It's not, it's, it's not
0: entirely, obviously, yes. it wasn't entirely open, clearly. But the industrial age took us deep into stock. We started living yeah, off exactly. hydrocarbons. Exactly. Right. Okay. Wow. Something that had
1: accumulated over millions of years, we were now going to use up that we had stored. I mean, we, as, right. you know, the, <laughs> the planet, yeah. uh, so to speak, as a planet, had stored and now we were using it. Not unreasonably, and uh, but it has very profound consequences.
0: And so, harnessing more energy then per- led to more production of entropy as well. I guess sure, absolutely, yeah, right. hugely,
1: and and you know the 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 movement towards renewable energy could be re- could be thought of in terms of let us try to return to a, a system that is more open mm. where we use. The, the open-ended uh, energy of the Sun hmm. um, so we return to that which is gives us much um, much more control on the one hand but mi- minimizes tremendously the production of en- of entropy
0: right very very interesting there and then so and then in doing so it also was a transition as you said from an open system to effectively a closed system
1: exactly and we because- now the, the question is can we return to some semblance at least, of an open system. Right. Okay. Or at least some aspects of an open system.
0: And that would necessitate, I mean, just in the specific case of hydrocarbon use, that would necessitate yep. us filtering the carbon from the atmosphere. That would be like pushing back against be, the entropy a little bit. Sure, that
1: would, yes,
0: exactly. Returning it to the soil, so to speak, or to right. the ocean, or whatever. You know. It's fascinating. So it's like there's this long term cycle, I guess, to produce hydrocarbons. And when we start tapping them at an accelerated rate, we inevitably create more entropy. But to to fix that, we have to actually accelerate the cycle that returns the entropy to the dirt or the ocean. Wow. Interesting.
1: So that's the question. Can we do that?
0: And uh, that's a huge challenge. right?
1: you know and 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 the extraordinary thing is to recognize i mean it's sort of a sort of obvious you know that store that we tap into built mm-hmm. up over you know uh, billions if not hundreds of billions of years and we dissipate it in 200.
0: <laughs>
1: you know uh, and that's part of the issue as well so it's not it's also time time right you know, plays a crucial role, the acceleration of time, which is a subject I'm extremely interested in, by the way, is this whole question of, you know, um, the difference between calendar time the mm-hmm. time defined by, you know, astronomical, um, uh, or astromo- you know, the Earth spinning on its axis and, right. you know, moving around its sun. That's how we define sort of this external, almost objective time, on the other hand, we we've also generated a different kind of time, which is our social time. Yeah. And we recognize that we feel often on a sort of accelerating treadmill um, as time speeds up in terms of our social lives. Right. Yeah. And that's I can true. tell you, as someone that's over 80 years old, <laughs> that I have been, my God, have I been conscious of in my lifetime. When I think back to you know my childhood in the 50s teenage years in the 60s life you know the speed of life the pace of life and the pace of change was you know viscerally so much slower
0: is this do you think that is predominantly your own personal experience of time changing as you've aged or is this this has to do with the technological realities that have changed i
1: think it's technological realities and i think there's good reasons for it uh, which we can go into, and um, it's uh, it's part of our success, actually. I mean, mm-hmm. that accelerating pace of life is something that um, has come part and parcel of um, our, um, well, this gets into things we haven't yet talked about, you know, our superlinear kind of yeah. behavior, scaling <laughs> laws and so on. But it is part and parcel of our success is that and yet, it's also—it's a bit like you know—it's very interesting to me that many of these things, the things that are the source of our success, you know, that, that are, you know, like our creating you know, the discovery of fossil fuels and their exploitation, right. the invention and development of free market systems and entrepreneurship and capitalism all have been enormously successful. I mean, that's how we've come to this time, but they've also accelerated life and they also have threatened us in some way. Mm -hmm. There's a threat in that and and it's sort of analogous to what I was talking about in terms of um, aging and mortality, that the very system that supports us, our metabolic system, whether it's the biochemistry that creates the molecules that keep us alive or the networks that distribute energy and resources they're also killing us <laughs> so it's uh, it's it's almost uh, spiritual and poetic in mm-hmm. some horrible way right that, uh, you know there's a price to pay it's
0: it's a bit of a platitude but there's no free lunch no free lunch yeah that's it as is said in thermodynamics i think so all right hey everybody or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Great stuff there. Let's talk about the things we haven't talked about yet. So you mentioned, I guess this is just the basics of scaling, which really underpins a lot of what you wrote about in the book. Um, I thought the very simple example was captured. Well, like if you have a cube with 10 meter sides and you double the sides of the cube to 20 meters each, what happens to its volume? And intuition tells you, Oh, well, the volume doubled, you doubled the side. So you doubled the volume, but no, you actually increase the volume eight X, which is two cubed, which is actually why we say, you know, squared and cubed, right? An area area and volume scale with the square and cube of side lengths respectively. And so that's kind of like, I guess the foundation there. And, um, you know, later in your book, you explain why Godzilla couldn't be real effectively based on that. (laughs) So um, maybe I could just ask you to unpack that a little bit. Sure, yeah.
1: So no, uh, what you say is of course correct is that uh, the most primitive Example of scale. Well, first of all, what is scale? Scale simply asks the question if I have a system that's functioning, what happens if I increase its size? What happens if I double the size of everything inside it? Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, the, the simplest example, um, you know, is indeed, um, uh, you know, a cube. Um, if, you, well, if you take a line, just a simple straight line, and you double the size, the line's twice as long. So that's trivial. But if you had a square, that's, um, you know, uh, one by one, one foot by one foot. The square, of course, if you double the size, the square, the the area doesn't increase by a factor of two. It increases by a factor of four because each side is now two Two feet long, and it's two squared. And and so similarly with the cube, it's two cubed, as you said, so it's eight. So they increase much faster. And this observation, was first made and its implications, its crucial implications, were recognized by you know, the man that, in a certain sense, founded modern science, namely Galileo hmm. in, in, the, hmm. in the 15th century. Um, and um, Galileo pointed this out and he pointed out its profound implications because what Galileo realized was that it was the following he asked the question could you have infinitely tall trees or infinitely tall buildings? And um, so he said, well, look, you know, if you, um, uh, inc- if, you, if you increase the size of a tree by a factor of two everywhere, its weight, which is proportional to its volume, mm-hmm. uh, increases by a factor of eight much faster. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the strength of the trunk for example, holding up the tree, mm-hmm. turns out only increases proportional to the cross-sectional area of the trunk. Hmm. And so that only increases by a factor of four. Mm-hmm. So if you keep doing that, eventually um, the weight that has to be held up by the trunk outpaces the strength of the tr- of the material of the wood. And so the, the tree collapses under its own weight and similarly with buildings you can't so so it's so the, you know you pointed out therefore when you look at an elephant it has these great big fat legs because it has to hold up this enormous weight whereas you know um, a, whore, a dog mm. um, has nice thin elegant legs and so on because it doesn't need it and uh, uh, and so on. So this, uh, and he expostulated, expostulated on that. It was uh, it's, it's a wonderful section to read, actually, even now, five hundred years later. But that was sort of the, the the crude beginnings of the question of scale, and that has permeated all of science and all of technology mm-hmm. and uh, all of industry, of course, um, because you ask, you know, you build a product um, and you want to scale it up. Uh-huh. If you build, you build an iPhone. Um, how do you scale it up to an iPad, uh-huh. or you know, and so on? You know, and it's non trivial actually. Um, so this is the question, or the kind of questions that I eventually got into was: if you have a city and you look at a city twice the size, you know, do you know do you have twice the amount of crime? Uh-huh. Uh, do you have uh, twice as many patent spring producers? or twice as innovative? Uh, does it need twice as long roads and so on but in but I got into this through biology um, and, um, and and, and the, the whole kind of taxonomy if you like of different kind of scaling laws uh-huh. and um, you know because you can have scaling laws where uh, because the ones that we described on so-called nonlinear as I said the the, the, the volume scales, by a factor of eight, whereas the length only scales by a factor of uh, two, mm-hmm. and so when you double size, so uh, that's that's obviously non-linear, um, and almost everything around us scales in this non-linear fashion. And um, the, the example that got me intrigued in biology was to do with um, metabolic rate, which is perhaps the most fundamental quantity of life. And if you make an analog to it is the most fundamental uh, quantity um, associated with a city or a company, mm-hmm. because it asks um, how much energy, how much food do you need per day to stay alive? Mm-hmm. Uh, you well, know, 2,000 food calories. And the question is, how does that scale, um, for example, across all mammals? So, um, you know, if you have a mammal twice the size of another, um, does it be twice as much food? Well, you would naively think it might because there's twice as many cells and the cells are pretty much the same. So why would you, you know, what what would be twice? Well, it turns out that's not true. Mm -hmm. turns out um, the bigger you are, the less energy per cell is needed to stay alive. And it was, this was discovered in the 1930s by a man named Max Kleiber Who discovered that um, to put it into English, um, if you double the size of a mammal, then instead of needing twice as much food per day to stay alive, you only need very roughly 75%. And it doesn't matter if you double from two grams to four grams or two kilograms to four kilograms or two thousand kilograms to four thousand. Doesn't matter. You always need just this 75%. And in mathematics, um, that's called a power law for various reasons. It doesn't, it's got nothing to do with power in the usual colloquial sense, but it's called a power law. And um, that um, savings of 25% is expressed by saying the exponent of of the power law is three quarters. -hmm. So he discovered this three quarters power law scaling law, and it was kind of astonishing. And since then, Mm -hmm. we've discovered that this is true across all of life. It's it's Mm -hmm. not just mammals, it's fish, birds, crustacea, cells, ecosystems, everything Mm -hmm. Mm has this three quarters. But even more so, what was discovered later was that if you look at any physiological quantity, something as mundane as the length of your aorta, Uh or some life history event as profound as how long you're going to Uh live, that also has scales in a similar way, always has this systematic, regular behavior. Uh Um, And not only that, the savings, as you get bigger, is always a multiple of one quarter. It's always Uh 25%, 75%, and so on. And uh, for those of your listeners that listen to this, that are familiar with the idea of logarithms, uh-huh. where you plot data, not one, two, three, four, five, but you plot it by, you know, one. O- orders of magnitude. Orders of magnitude. is yeah. what's amazing is that, for example, that metabolic rate, if you plot metabolic rate on the vertical axis, going up by factors of 10, uh-huh. and on the horizontal axis, you plot it against the mass of the organism, Going up by factors of 10. What is remarkable is all data lies on a straight line. And that is sort of fantastic because, my God, nothing, we're probably the most complex phenomenon in the universe, life. It's so complicated and so on. And and we we believe we evolved by natural selection. You know, we we're highly historically contingent. Every cell type, every organ in our body is historically contingent. So what you would have expected had you plotted this, these points would lie sort of scattered across the, uh, the graph uh, reflecting the historical contingency, reflecting the evolutionary processes and the specificity of individual yeah. random behavior. Quite the contrary, they lie beautifully on a straight line. And this is true of all these physiological variables and all these life history events. And that's what intrigued me 20 odd years ago, as to where in the hell do these laws <laughs> come from? What is the origin? Why could it be that we have this sort of chaotic random idea of natural selection, yet these, anything we measure looks so regular and systematic?
0: Yeah, it's truly mind boggling. Um... And your you know, your book does a beautiful job of laying it out. A couple of other things that really struck me there were and correct me where any of this is wrong, the total number of heartbeats is roughly <laughs> the same across all animals, right? Just with a smaller animal, I guess, having a more rapid heartbeat and shorter life, larger animal having slower heartbeat, longer life, but the number of heartbeats works out to be approximately the yeah. same. Yes, yeah, it's, it's-
1: Sort of amazing, uh, actually. Yeah, go ahead.
0: You mentioned also that just, I think you said this, a number of patents registered per unit of population. You went into some other economic variables Yeah, sure. that were interesting. So my question here, I mean, it, it is, if you really reflect on it, it's almost like jaw dropping, right? To see so much complexity, but then it just falls all on a straight line. It's like all life is derived from something. There's some commonality, some universal here. And is that then the I guess the universality of these quantities we would say with a little bit of of knowledge having gotten through the book, it's pointing towards a fundamental network geometry of nature, something like that that's inherent to life, but also things that aren't necessarily traditionally considered to be alive, like businesses and cities as we'll get into um, I mean the other book I mentioned earlier the he made a physics argument too for even the shape of a river basin is kind of based on the same network geometry. So is that what's going on? Like we've just, (laughs) the universe is some type of network architecture and then based on the physical realities or mathematical realities of that architecture, that's what shapes everything (laughs) kind of on a limb here trying to form this question, but
1: (laughs) So, well, uh, let me see if I can answer this. So, but that's what the book is about, as you say. My mm-hmm. book is exactly about this. Yes, and it's first of all trying to answer the question: Where did these laws come from? Mm-hmm. And then showing the extraordinary interconnectedness and universality among them. Mm-hmm. Or, or, and and to put it even slightly differently, that, um, and maybe more specifically, that. Um, organisms, cities, and companies obey similar mathematical laws, but they are variations on a theme, mm. you know, you know, the mathematics is the same, but they do something that right. makes a city different than a company, and a company different than a human being, right. and so on. And all of that, and, and the work that I got involved in, uh, beginning in the mid-90s, um, Was uh, making the hypothesis. Well, I asked myself originally the question, you know, how in the hell can it be that, uh, first of all, that uh, we all, you know, all mammals, first of all, obey these simple scaling laws, and how can it be that, um, you know, birds do it too, and fish, and crustacea, and so on what's, you know, what, what is it, what is the commonality here? So I st- this was the work in bio purely in biology. Right. And I realized that, of course, the, the, the challenge that we all face as a complex system is that here we are, we're made of, you know, our bodies have about 10 trillion cells in them. And uh, each of those cells has to be uh, sustained in a roughly speaking, you know, efficient, democratic way. Mm. So how how we do we do that? Well, that's what natural selection solved. It evolved networks. I mean, we're a bunch of networks. That's mm-hmm. what I realized. You know, that at this level, a bunch of networks. And then I made the sort of hypothesis, uh, the leap that these scaling laws are actually a manifestation of the physics and mathematics of these networks. Mm. And it is physics and mathematics that is basically universal. Mm. And so let's see if we can understand where these scaling laws come from. And within biology, where in the hell does this number one quarter come from? Uh, You know, that's pretty remarkable that the, the, so to speak, you know, the magic number of life is four, it's uh-huh. not you know, 21 or seven or 13, it's four. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, where in the hell did that come from? So I started thinking about that within this network context and I made some progress. And then um, uh, I, I was introduced through the Center Institute. I was not a member of the Center Institute at the time to a wonderful uh, biologist named Jim Brown um, who, had, who was in the colleges basically. He was, he was actually president of the American Ecological Society um, at, at the time. And uh, he had been thinking about these questions from a biologist's viewpoint. And of course was also intrigued by um, the fact that there were these extraordinary scaling laws. Because when I first saw them, I thought, my God, this must be the key to biology because biology looks like this great big mess, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, i'm sitting here i look across here and i have i can see you know forests and trees and plants and just looks sort of arbitrary you know what I mean? uh-huh. uh, but and, and uh but it isn't it isn't and that's what these laws are telling us there's a certain constraint uh-huh. mathematical constraint that's going on so where does this come from and how does it relate to natural selection anyway to cut a very long story short, we, uh, we worked on this, uh, Jim and I, and his then student Brian Enquist, who is now a, a highly established ecologist himself. And um, we uh, derived mathematically, the origin of these scaling laws in biology, at least uh, we, we showed how it derives from networks, certainly within you know, mammals and, and, and in plants and so forth. And the idea is, just to repeat, that um, these um, uh, that these the scaling laws and this universality is a reflection of the mathematical properties of these networks. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I- I'll just spend a couple of minutes, without being technical, on the kinds of properties of these networks that have to transcend the evolved design, because we obey the same scaling laws as the plants and trees out there, but uh-huh. we're not, obviously we're quite different from them. We're completely different. Uh, you know, we think of ourselves quite differently from them. Uh, and yet we're both networks. And so the scale of the, the, the the fundamental assumptions or the fundamental principles of the network um, were sort of the following that um, first of all, that um, uh, the, the the terminal units of the network. So take your circulatory system; the terminal units are capillaries.
0: Right.
1: Well, those capillaries, and then they feed cells. Well, you know, natural selection, as it evolved new uh, species, did not reinvent cells and capillaries, They didn't invent the fundamental units mm-hmm. when so the difference between you and a whale from this viewpoint is the network it's not the cells or the capillaries; these terminal units right uh, and in the fact nodes,
0: i guess we could call it the
1: yes okay. exactly so those you know your liver cell is very similar to that of a whale or a rat hmm. even though you know you look different Those networks are quite different in size so that was the first sort of principle that the, the, the that there's these units, and we build on those. And the difference, by the way, between taxonomic groups is that you know you change the fundamental unit, and so you make a huge transition, hmm. rather than just changing the network. So that was the first thing. the The most important principle was that the um, that natural selection, the the, the continuous feedback that is implicit in natural selection, the survival of the fittest idea Mm -hmm. um, and and competition, is that that has led to those organisms that have been successful optimizing something. Mm -hmm. They have competed by optimizing. So let me give you a very simple example, uh, that the, the circulatory system that not just you and I share and every other human being has shared, But every mammal that has ever existed shares is one that has evolved so as to minimize the amount of energy our hearts have to do to pump blood through the system in order to feed ourselves and keep us alive. And we minimize that. We minimize, so to speak, the mundane process of keeping us alive in order to maximize the amount of energy we can devote to reproduction Uh, to sex, reproduction, Mm. and rearing of our offspring in order to uh, promote our genes. So that was sort of the idea. And uh, amazingly, when you put all that into mathematics, and that's where all the hard work is, Mm. uh, is to translate those words into a mathematical framework, um, out popped these scaling laws, and out popped the number four, the Mm. quarter so-called quarter power and by the way uh, one thing we haven't talked about uh, uh, which is crucial is that it showed that the um, these networks are fractals and we haven't mm-hmm. talked about fractals but they're mm-hmm. fractals and um, uh, and even if you know, people are not familiar with fractals you turns out you are familiar with them right. <laughs> <laughs> even if you don't if you don't don't, don't know Precisely what the word means. You're very familiar with them because everybody's familiar with looking at a tree, yep. a big tree, and realizing that it's a branching network. The trunk gets, to, branches start br- sprouting out, and those branches get smaller and smaller. But also, very importantly, if you were to cut some branch somewhere up in the canopy of the tree and remove it with all the branches above it attached to it you put it elsewhere, put it in beside the tree, it just looks like a scaled-down version of the original tree. Right. Um, or if you take a piece of broccoli, and you know, you take one of those uh, pieces of broccoli, cut it off from the main broccoli, it looks like, just like the broccoli. And indeed, you, you know, you can do the experiment. It's a fun thing to do with broccoli, is you take one of those, uh, what do you call it? Crowns, I don't know what you, what you call uh, florets, them.
0: Florets, maybe, I'm not sure. Florets, yeah, yeah.
1: florets and you put it aside, and you take a photograph of it with your iPhone, and then just scale it up with your fingers, it looks like the original piece of (laughs) broccoli. And that's called self-similarity. And that object, that uh, object is called a fractal. And what we showed was the mathematics of these networks is in order to optimize the system, is approximates a fractal and that's why they look the way they do because they've optimized and going back to your non-living example earlier of river systems Mm -hmm. they too have fractal-like structures of course they're in two dimensions but it's a similar idea uh, because um, they in a certain sense are optimizing the drainage of a watershed if you Mm -hmm. like the Mm -hmm. water tries, quote, tries to find its fastest way down. And again, if you put that into mathematics, it will look, it, it, it shows that it should be an approximate fractal, which water which uh, water river systems are. And in that sense, they're like you. And to just jump ahead, so it is with road networks and so on. Yes, so on. yes. No, I, I
0: beautifully said, I, you know, first, I read the book, Chaos by James Gleick, maybe oh, yeah, 10, sure. 10 or 12 years ago. And he introduced me to the work of Mandelbrot, who clearly, I, he's the father basically of fractal yeah. geometry, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah.
1: interesting. Yes, fractal, I, I should have mentioned that in passing, but um, the person that brought this, so to speak, to consciousness, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, 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 not just the scientific community, but uh, you know, broadening community, was a man named benoit mandelbrot who coined the word fractal Mm -hmm. and he pointed out that most of the things around us that we're interested in on the planet are fractal like in some way or another
0: yeah it's uh, i would encourage anyone that hasn't seen it to go look at the mandelbrot set too. one of the most beautiful mathematical artifacts ever Um, and perfectly exemplifies what we're talking about right it's different yes. everywhere at every scale but also self-similar yes but so you can so, blow up one
1: piece of it you know you take a little piece of it and blow it up it yeah. actually looks like the original thing
0: exactly but yes yeah, slightly form, different but by the way
1: um, i i should be careful about it. this is very important yeah. because i said it rather glibly um in general it's not just blowing it up in a linear fashion mm. you you, uh, you have to blow it up in a non-linear fashion Mm. And um, that is that involves something called the fractal dimension of the object. And and that's true of us, by the way. It's not just blowing us, blowing up our circulatory system. Yes. The way our circulatory our, our, our circulatory system is a scaled-down version of an elephant's. Right. But it's scaled down in a nonlinear way, following those scaling laws they talked about. And the mathematical theory tells you how it is that you should scale it so that the elephant and the human being operate efficiently. So let me,
0: let me, I want to read, you included this in your book and I think it's just a cool little, I don't know if it's a poem or what, it says, this is about fractals. Oh yeah. So naturalists observe, a flea hath smaller fleas that on him prey and these have smaller still to bite them and so proceed ad infinitum thus every poet in his kind is bit by him that comes behind great fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them and little fleas have lesser fleas and so on ad infinitum Just yes. a poetic so little uh, yes encapsulation yes, yes. of the fractal i want you mentioned something there i wanted to touch on though because that fractal dimension is that the fourth dimension is that why i the number four is incorporated. Uh, no, it here, is. Or? It is.
1: Yes, it is. And it, so here's the. So yes. So now let's go back to this uh, number four. So <clears throat> this four, if you go back to the work that we did, um, the number four is actually three plus one. And I'll tell you what <laughs> <laughs> it, And the three is because of something I have. I didn't mention about these networks. Another property. Generic universal property of these networks is sort of an obvious one. It's, it's what we call technically space filling. Mm-hmm. That is, the network has to go everywhere. So it's sort of obvious that, you know, I mean, your, your circulatory system has to go everywhere within your body because every cell has to be fed, right. otherwise it'll die. So that's sort of a, sounds, sounds like a trivial statement. It's non trivial because you have to put it into mathematics and it's mm-hmm. a constraint on the network that everything in the system has to be sort of connected to the network. So uh, to, just to jump ahead, um, in a city, um, uh, the, the road network is also space filling. It has to end up, you know, every, every house or every dwelling, you know, has to have access to the road. So the road, you know, eventually ends up, you know, you're on a street, in other words, that's all it says. But to put that into mathematics, is, is not not trivial, but uh, so it's a but but. Um, uh, so the, the three plus one, which I said before is the one quarter, the four, mm-hmm. the three plus one, the three can be traced back to the fact that we live in three dimensions. Mm-hmm. That we're three dimensional. So if we were five dimensional creatures, that number would be five plus one. So the number would be six not four, uh, and so on. And indeed, just as this is a tangential comment, one of the things that intrigued us was, is there a way of testing this? Uh, Because if we were two-dimensional, it would be two plus one. The number would be three and so forth. And so we had a student do some experiments on two-dimensional plants. Plants are, like ivy grows on a two-dimensional surface. And uh, we did, he did this, he grew these things over a year and uh, then did all the measurements and found that um, it was very difficult, but he found that the answer was not inconsistent with the prediction that it was the third rather than a quarter. Um, the trouble is, this is a more technical statement, that he didn't, you know, you can't, you know, look, mammals go from a shrew to a whale, which is a hundred million times bigger. So that's an enormous range and you can see the scaling beautifully, but trying to grow ivy in the lab, you don't have a, a scale of a hundred billion, you have a scale if you're lucky by a factor of five to 10, which is not right. really enough to test, but it was not inconsistent. Anyway, I'm sorry, that's a tangential comment, but let me go back to the one now. So there's the three, is because it's three dimensions. Mm. The one is because of a curious property of fractals, um, which Mandelbrot already recognized um, way back when he introduced them, that the, so to speak, that, you know, we we tend to think of dimension up, down, sideways, as integer, you know, it's, the integer numbers. Mm -hmm. But what he realized was that fractals, these curious properties of self-similarity, give rise to a generalization of dimension that doesn't have to be integer, be 1.23 or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, However, um, if you are maximally fractal-like, that is, you really are taking advantage of of space-filling and you're really optimizing, uh, the maximum you can change the dimension is by number by one, huh. and that's what we do. We optimize uh, the, the the fractality, if you like, the self similarity, in order to optimize the system and be most efficient. Huh. And that gives rise, if you follow the mathematics through, to plus one. I mean, I it's this is a so a hand I to try to put it into English uh-huh. is is difficult, and I try to do it in the book. Um, with an example, um, which I'm happy to try to repeat here, but it's big, it, it, I don't know if you remember reading it. it was about uh, washing uh, sheets in a in, in a <laughs> in, in a washing machine. That uh, one I, I don't I, recall. If I say it, it might be that I don't know if it's worth spending the time. <laughs> but I try to think of an example where in ordinary life, actually. Um, the dimensionality is increased by one even though you don't realize it let me let me try it out I okay please let me try it out so we because it refers back to the very beginnings of our conversation that if you have a sheet literally a sheet from your bed um, and you were to double the length of each side we know the area goes up we talked about it by a factor of four goes up by 2 squared mm-hmm. and we say uh, the way we talk about that mathematically we say, the dimension of a sheet is two, uh-huh. is that squared, yeah. and the dimension and just going back to what we said earlier, the dimension of a cube is three. Right. So sheets have dimension two because they're two dimensional. That's why we say two dimensional. Okay. Now it comes a time you, when you have to wash your sheets, uh-huh. so and you want to be very efficient about it. So you wait a long time and you collect all your sheets and you stuff them as hot, much as you can, all these sheets into your the tub of your washing machine. Now, the tub of your washing machine is a volume. Uh-huh. So it has dimension three, two times two times two, two cubed, uh-huh. that is dimension three. Now, if you ask, how much? Even though you have increased, if you double the size of the tub, of the tub of the what? Double the size of your washing machine. Uh-huh. The volume has increased by a factor of two cubed eight. Uh-huh. Um, the sheets, the amount of sheet that you can wash, uh-huh. has now increased also because you've stuffed it in and it's crinkled and so on, also by a factor of two cubed eight, because you've stuffed it in. Yet, each sheet has only got a dimension of two. So you have effectively, by crumpling it up and pushing it in, even though it's still a continuous sheet, but it's all Mm -hmm. crumpled, you have increased effectively the dimension of a sheet by one. You've gone, made sheets, into the two-dimensional into something that is an approximately three-dimensional object by crunching it up. So that's sort of, and that's an example of, and in fact, by the way, just a side comment again to that. If you look at the distribution of all the little crinkles, Uh they actually follow a fractal dimension because Uh you're you're actually taking advantage of fractals. So it's extremely interconnected all of this stuff. Yeah. So, we sort of do something like that with our um, incredible cardiovascular system. And, and indeed, you know, even though you're only maybe, you know, six feet tall, I think, I forget the numbers, but I talk about it in the book. I think if you laid all the vessels of your circulatory system side by side, I think they go round the earth at least once maybe more. Uh-huh. And that's all inside you, which yeah. is truly
0: remarkable. It's a lot of crinkled blood vessels. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: a lot of crinkling going on there.
0: The, I'm oh, love... sorry, I, okay, I, I, sorry I have to talk too much to explain this. No, Let no, no, it's very, it's very helpful, and thank you. I, I want to throw something back at you that might be a bit meta, but I'd just love to hear your feedback on it. Look. I have almost considered... Just in, in co- trying to intuit this geometry of nature we call fractals, There, I thought about kind of the opposite, which is, I guess, like a sphere, yeah. which seems to be the most conservational structure in a way, right? The most energy efficient structure, yes. which is to say you can have, I might be saying this wrong, but I guess maximum volume per unit of surface yes. area. Correct. Correct. like that. Yes. Whereas the network archetype or the fractal archetype, whatever the we're using to describe this, it seems to kind of do the opposite. Like it wants to maximize surface area per unit yeah. of volume. Like it almost has no that's volume that's, or maximal exactly. surface area. Yes. Is that related to the purpose of these structures? Because again, a sphere like a planet yeah. or a star, it's trying to maxim it's it gets one dose of energy, not one dose it's trying to conserve itself over time. Whereas the, it seems like the purpose of this fractal structure is to optimize exchange. It wants to interact with the environment or shuttle energy matter information to every little nook and cranny sort of thing. Is that related? Because then it seems like almost the fractal structure is it's a structure of economization ultimately, which is interesting to your point where you say, okay, three spatial dimensions plus one, I automatically think of time. I'm like, oh, well, time is the fourth dimension. And then, so if the fractal structure is meant to economize, that means it's dealing with the fourth dimension of time in the most efficient way possible. That's a whole lot I just spilled out there, but I'd love to hear. <laughs> your
1: well, I, I I, don't We can talk about time separately, but uh, no, but, but, but I think that you've got it. Um, you said it correctly that. These, another way of looking at what your, for example, circulatory system is doing, but these, these kinds of biological networks are doing is maximizing the interface between the, it's terminal units, that's where uh-huh. like our capital is, and whatever it's supplying.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Okay. So the cells in this instance. Uh-huh and it wants to maximize it in the most efficient way. And, um, and uh, it, it accomplishes that through having a fractal structure in order to take the other piece that comes into it is that you have to take something that is macroscopic, uh-huh. uh, you know, like you know, your heart and pumping the blood through and take it down to something it is microscopic, which is oh. your cells. And, um, and you have to do it in a way that um, maximizes the exchange in order to maximize the, the feeding of metabolic energy to the cells, and as well as receiving energy from the cells. Oh. So um, it, it is fundamental to this from this viewpoint is ideas of what I said earlier, optimization and efficiency. And uh, indeed, I I didn't say this, but um, um, one of the things that comes out of the theory and uh, that is uh, in agreement with the data, which I already emphasized, is this um, three quarters power scaling law uh, of uh, metabolic rate, which I didn't um, use the word sublinear. Um, It was implied that is linear is, just to repeat what I said earlier, linear is double the size, you need twice as much metabolic energy, Uh not the case. That's linear. Sublinear is double the size, I need less than twice as much. Uh And in fact, the theory uh, shows that it should be roughly 25% less each time you double. Um, And and that's what the data shows, that's so-called Kleiber's law. Uh And, that shows an extraordinary economy of scale, systematic predicted economy of scale, the bigger you are. And what it says is that the uh, metabolic rate of an individual cell is decreasing systematically and predictably with the size of the animal. So even though I said earlier, your liver cell, your horse's liver cell, And a whale's liver cell and your dog's liver cell are all basically the same. They're those Mm -hmm. fundamental units. However, because of the constraint of the network, your liver cell is working less hard than your dogs, Mm. but it's working harder than your horses and harder than a whale. Right. So this is the basis of why it is that big things generally live longer than small things. That's why uh, a mouse lives only one to two years, a shrew for about a year, um, and a whale lives for about 120, blue whale can live maybe as long as 125 years. Even though they're made of the same stuff with the same genes, um, that uh, the amount of work that is having to be done by a cell, systematically decreases. So going back to what I talked about in entropy, it is producing less entropy, the bigger you are. And so uh, you live longer in a systematic way.